probably, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not Northern Irish. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm actually Polish. I arrived in Northern Ireland back in 2001. There was probably about a dozen Poles uh, across the province. Uh, I left the gate open, and five years later, there was about 40,000. So uh, I'm really sorry for that. For, when I first arrived in Northern Ireland, uh, I went there not in a business of peace, but in a business of making money. I was working in a private sector. We had a chain of shops, we you know, created probably something in the region of 80 jobs. And uh, I wasn't taking really too much notice of the situation that the country was emerging from the conflict. However, it must be my socialist upbringing. One day I was driving my sports car and the report came on the radio. A local police officer uh, reported a hate crime in South Belfast in a, a loyalist area of Sunday Row. Uh, five Polish men were attacked by UDA with a baseball bat. Uh, one guy in his 50s ended up in the Royal Victoria Hospital. Uh, I picked up the phone, I called the local police station and I offered my help. Because at the time there were not any Polish organizations or you know, the Polish diplomats were not really operating within Northern Ireland. Uh, I speak Polish, I speak Russian, I had good understanding of the Polish culture at the same time. By then I developed a good understanding of Northern Ireland scene. And my offer was welcomed with open arms and uh, I was invited to this a community consultation and in one room there were some uh, local women and local community uh, and some of the local UDA guys and in the other room there were representatives from the Office of First and Deputy First Minister, Community Relations Council and the PSNI, the police service in Northern Ireland. I had very little experience, I had business experience, I didn't have any experience of you know, trying to resolve that but you know first of all we identified that uh, local construction company brought Polish workers over to Northern Ireland. They were paid two pounds per hour, significantly under the uh, uh, minimal wage. Uh, they were put in Sandy Row in houses, 10 men per house. They were drinking, they were you know, causing disturbance. Local community did not know how to deal with it, apart of going to the local boys and using violence. So we had to contact labor relations agency we had to engage with the Quality Commission, we had to engage with Housing Executive, but at the time I already understood that we also had to invest in relationship building. So I volunteered to go into the local community on the 11th of July to attend their street party. They invited me just before 12th of July, I don't know if you are familiar with Northern Ireland, but the marching season, quite a difficult period uh, during the summer. And uh, the police service knew that I was going there, so they sent three Range Rovers. You know, they thought that I'm going to cause a riot, or maybe they knew how hard I love the party. <laughs> so, uh, and I brought some Polish people with me in order to try to develop some relationship with the locals. And I will never forget that, because as we arrived, I was welcomed by this lovely lady, probably in her 50s wearing a t-shirt with a photograph on Joel Pon the second and the slogan F the Pope. <laughs> uh, I was like, uh, oh, those people are mad. <laughs> at the same time, you know, I look at our beloved Polish Popey and I thought like, well, he wouldn't want me to cause a riot, you know, or you know, upset, let's look beyond the t-shirt. 
<laughs> so uh, we spent two or three hours in the local community after a number of cups of tea later and you know sausage rolls and beautiful sandwiches and walk around Sandy Row and uh, I uh, you know learned about the history of every single mural in the area uh, we left and you know and uh, two weeks later this police officer called me and said Eva I don't know what you did but this community is putting Polish classes up uh, the local UDA guys are going to Krakow and to Auschwitz to learn more about Polish history. And since then, there, was no, there wasn't any attacks there. So what I learned from the very early experience on my journey from business of making money to business of peace, and now I'm hoping to get back into business of making money, with <laughs> <laughs> Tina's help, uh, that the most effective way to do it is just to do it. And it will take one person and one small step at a time. And uh, peace building, as Senator Mitchell said uh, last month in Belfast during the celebrations of the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, it's not just about the agreement. It's about what's in people's hearts and minds. It's about relationships. So the Belfast and Good Friday Agreement, it's really a, an excellent model of the social innovation. <coughs> It radically changed the whole ecosystem of how Northern Ireland, uh, with its institutions, started addressing some of the disturbed historic relationships between people within Northern Ireland, between the North and the South, and between UK and Ireland. And the people behind the agreement, including my dear friend, my mentor, my boss, my chairman, Lord Alderdice, who is here, so I'm not under pressure at all. <laughs> Uh, were the real social entrepreneurs. They were the ones who created the right environment to change the hearts and minds, to stop <coughs> violence and to build peaceful and stable society. But, as Lord Alder Dice often says, relationships is not a finished business. We have to constantly work on relationships. And it looks like the current generation of politicians, especially politicians, but also a wider civic society, and the business community forgot how important those relationships are. The Good Friday Agreement also was socially proved because of the referendum, unlike some other recent referendum, which didn't have the same level of support. Good Friday Agreement had to be since renegotiated and we had several other agreements, you know, St. Andrews and Hillsborough and Stormont House and a fresh start agreement and currently you know the latest uh, talks are fortunately broke you know in order to restore power sharing so unfortunately it collapsed earlier this year while all those agreements stopped uh, political violence the sectarian division in northern ireland keeps paralyzing the system both in terms of society but also in terms of business so in Marcel's presentation before lunch, he touched on the framework for understanding and describing the factors which are associated with peaceful societies. And recently, I looked and re-looked at the eight pillars which Marcel talked about in his uh, presentation. To recap is the well-functioning government, unfortunately we don't have one, uh, is the sound business environment, I will talk a little bit more about that element, Equitable distribution of resources. Again, the poorer you are, the more segregated you are in Northern Ireland. The acceptance of rights of others. 
we've got some challenges in Northern Ireland. Good relationships with your neighbours, sure, as long as they are from the same background as you are. <laughs> uh, free flow of information, we've got BBC and Nolan Show, please check it out, it's like a great example of, you know, comes. And high level of human capital, again, it's great, but you know, uh, it's especially outside Northern Ireland, Northern Irish people outside Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And the uh, low level of uh, corruption, which is probably something uh, we are not too bad. So if we look at some of the pillars, uh, eight pillars within the Northern Ireland context, Northern Ireland Housing Executive revealed that over 90% of social housing in Northern Ireland, and this figure goes up to 94% in Belfast, uh, are segregated on the grounds of uh, religious background. So the poorer you are, the more segregated you are. Also, there are 109 peace walls. So for some, it's a great tourist attraction and source of business and you know, entrepreneurship. Uh, for others, it's just a, a very sad reminder of reality of how dysfunctional the community actually is. Another report produced by Ulster University uh, Economic Policy Center for the Department of Finance indicated that the public sector in Northern Ireland occurs every year additional cost of 833 million due to the division, mainly linked to polu pol policing and security, uh, policing and justice. Another thing, according to the Department of Education, 93% of children in Northern Ireland are still educated, either with uh, schools attended by Protestant or majority of Catholic pupils. Over 7%, only 7% of children are educated together. So you will hear a lot of stories that people do not meet somebody from different backgrounds until they did at university, but obviously if you are from working class area, you will never reach that stage. The other thing is that the majority of the electorate in Northern Ireland is split among the sectarian lines. Yet, if we look at the Life and Times survey in Northern Ireland, 47% of people would declare themselves that they are neither unionist or republican. So, Northern Ireland is constantly full of contradictions. In my recent blog for Zaid Business School, I started looking at Northern Ireland and I compared Northern Ireland to cooperation. Let's call it Northern Ireland PLC. So Northern Ireland PLC operates in an environment characterized by social complexity, political instability, and high economic inefficiency. Uh, and we've got uh, two uh, executive directors in waiting, which I refer to the uh, two leaders of our main parties. You know, we obviously operate without the executive for now more than 18 months. <coughs> Uh, but our executive directors, even if they were in the post, they've got completely opposed and different uh, objectives and visions <coughs> from the future of the, of the corporation. The branding of Northern Ireland is improving. Uh, Lonely Planet voted that Belfast and Northern Ireland is the best place to visit in 2018. We've got Game of France, we've got great tours, fantastic restaurants. Uh, Northern Ireland has amazing industrial past. It was the you know uh, place of great innovations. It was the world leader in cotton, linen, and shipbuilding industries. Uh, it invented chocolate. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mr. Sloan. 
and the street cars and this kind of department stores, mail order, uh, tires and uh, uh, electric tramways. So it was really, you know, innovation was at the heart of Northern Ireland PLC. Currently, Northern Ireland uh, is uh, number one in global destination for financial services technology projects and for uh, foreign direct investment for US for cybersecurity projects. It was reported in Financial Times just late last year. Another thing, Northern Ireland is also full of jobs and Tina McKenzie here will be able to tell you later about you know, all the uh, amazing vacancies and opportunities which exist in Northern Ireland. Unemployment rate in Northern Ireland at the moment <coughs> is lower than in the UK and the US and at the same level as in Germany below 3.5%. So we are really operating at the full employment. <coughs> However, there is one thing, the uh, high economic inactivity, currently at 27.9%, meaning that over a quarter of the working age population in Northern Ireland are out of work or not actively seeking work for a range of reasons. And even those in employment are quite often underemployed because of the zero-hour contracts and so on. So statistics and underemployment is one thing, but then what is happening on the ground is quite another. So employers are experiencing intense labor shortages, skill shortages. There is, uh, you know, the EU nationals have been uh, very critical in Northern Ireland job market in the last uh, few years. And without uh, EU workers, Northern Ireland wouldn't hit the recent record low in uh, economic inactivity and record high in employment. Also, in the past 12 years, Northern Ireland pub uh, private sector created 68,000 jobs. There was an increase of uh, over 14%. However, the output remains at the same level as in 2005 and the private sector wages after the vast <coughs> inflation are remaining at the same level as in 2003. So obviously, something is not quite right. There is another thing, 75% of the entire turnover in the uh, private sector comes from small businesses, micro-businesses. So we're talking about firms less than uh, 10 employees, quite often people who are self-employed, quite often family businesses, and as Professor uh, Colliers explained to us this morning, this may explain the very low productivity levels in Northern Ireland. Because of the fragmentation, uh, uh, business community in Northern Ireland is unable to scale up and therefore very, very fragile. So is the business of peace working in Northern Ireland or not? I'm not so sure and uh, I think Marcel is coming in June to run the index and to check if the bubble is going to burst or not. <laughs> you know, like I, I've been thinking during Marcel's presentation, you know, what about resilience? You know, th there has been quite a lot of resilience within Northern Ireland, uh, you know, across different sectors, but, you know, how long can it be sustainable? So political, social, economic system in Northern Ireland is full of contradictions. It's very messy. It is very complex. So it's very, very difficult to innovate. And yesterday on the train uh, on my way to Oxford, I was reading 44 letters from the modern liquid world by the late Polish philosopher Zygmunt Bauman. 
And in one of the chapters, he touched on the concept of interregnum, a gap between the old and the new, the transitional period uh, where the old is dying and the new cannot yet be born. So it often feels that Northern Ireland is stuck somewhere in between, uh, perhaps waiting for the new constitutional arrangement, perhaps not. But you know, as we are waiting, we've got another small issue, a little thing called Brexit to address. <laughs> and perhaps this, this could be the uh, subject for Oxpis 2019. <laughs> Thank you.